about 10 years ago, in my office walked in a fellow pastor that I served on team with. And this pastor was very visibly upset and began to speak with anger and tears to me. And then sharing that I had violated the ultimate trust and relationship with him. And then began to say that he felt that was what was common among the team that we both served. And as he's getting louder and so on, I realized that I, I really don't even know what is being talked about. But clearly it meant something to him. And so as he calmed down and I asked, I said, can I ask what it is that I have done that has violated the trust between you and I? And he said, the office furniture that was in my office was supposed to be in his office. And I said, excuse me? I, I, I'm not tracking. It, apparently, when they had ordered a bunch of office furniture, I, they were rebuilding and adding new offices that were for the youth ministry, and apparently there were some bookshelves and some tables that were thought to be going his way that were actually ordered for my new office, and there was a big misunderstanding, but he had gotten so angry and had let it brew for about a couple weeks to where the anger and the situation was way out of whack for what the actual issue was. And it had caused him great harm in, quite frankly, several relationships over that couple-week period because he began to act out of anger towards those that he worked with, thinking that this was all about ranking and valuing who was more important on the pastoral team. Now, mind you, this was a godly man, a pastor, somebody I actually respect very much. But what it shows is that any, any one of us can be very human if we allow ourselves to operate in the flesh and not by the leadership of God. We talked about relational brokenness last week, and we looked at a text in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and we're going to turn there again. So if you could open your Bibles to Matthew 5, if you do not have one with you, our ushers would be glad to provide you one, and you can keep this if you wish, if you do not have a Bible, and let it be yours. We looked in the text last week that God has a different standard by which he operates in human relationships from him as divine to us as created ones. And he operates by what we call a covenantal relationship. What do I mean when I say that? You see, in Scripture, when, it, when it's described as covenantal relationship, it was a relationship there where God makes a promise, a covenant, a commitment, 
or in some of our modern terms, we use terms of contract, but we have loopholes in contract. For God, there is no loophole in his covenants. It is a deep-hearted commitment that will be fulfilled to its single letter, to a single letter, all the way through to the end of time if necessary. That is where God is with relationships. He means what he says, and therefore, anything he commits to will happen. Is according to his part of the deal. His covenants are also written, when you look at all the covenants that are found in Scripture, and we looked at them last week, from Adam to Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and ultimately through Jesus Christ, the covenant with a, a new people that is covered by the blood of Christ. All those covenants were for the sake, not of God, but for us. God entered those covenants so that we would benefit However, when you study all those covenants, God kept his side of the deal, and often we did not. But God continued to honor his covenants even past our having broken them. And then as a result, we now can enter by the blood curtain of Jesus Christ and have relationship with God in spite of our brokenness. We have chosen not to follow the pattern of God. And this is where it concerns me, and I shared this last week. It concerns me how much the church, and I, and I say the church, not necessarily just in these walls, but as we as those who call ourselves Christians, as we operate relationally with others, we tend to create commitments with our words that are conditional, and we only enter into those commitments with one another based on how it might benefit us. And eventually, if we find that the benefit is not as what we had hoped for, our words of commitment to one another become dismissible. This is not only in marriages, which is an easy one to poke at, but it's also in business relationships. It's in friendships where we enter into relationship with one another and we just don't treat our words as lofty as God does. In fact, in the text in Matthew 5, where we read last week where Jesus says, you know what, you've heard it said that, that you know, make sure your oaths mean something, but I tell you, don't swear by any oath, not by heaven, not by God, not by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, our words should never have to be qualified. They don't need extra help. We don't have to say, well, the degree of truth I'm telling you now means that I need to amp it up and say, I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. Or I'll swear on my mother's grave. So, oh, your level of truth is growing. No, our truth should be from the very moment our words have been spoken, that we can trust the highest level of integrity of your words from the moment it leaves your mouth. That's the standard of God, and that's what he asks of us. And quite frankly, that lack of trustworthiness with our words has created an issue, a significant one. In fact, it's created a cataclysmic uh, a failure, an implosion to the household, the family unit, and it's broken so many relationships beyond. In fact, relational brokenness in our society has become the leading factor this is backed up by data. It has become the leading factor in depression, anger, and hopelessness. Let me say it again. Relational brokenness has become the leading factor in depression, anger, 
and hopelessness. And there is a direct connection from hopelessness to the tendencies towards suicidal actions. It's become alarming. And it's not just outside the church. It is also within the church. Because we've allowed our words, we've allowed our commitments to be so conditional, and the conditions tend to be how it benefits me. In Matthew 5, we didn't read this last week, but earlier in that chapter, Jesus says something that is pretty significant in regards to relational brokenness and how it affects, one way or the other, our worship. So let's begin by reading verse 21 of Matthew 5. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That seems pretty rational, logical. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, or it's some form of contempt, is answerable then to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So basically, Jesus is saying that, you know, you justify yourself in your anger because you haven't killed anyone. You haven't done anything to physically harm another out of your anger. But yet, if you let your anger grow, your heart is no different than that of a murderer. Because God doesn't look just on the outside. He looks on the inside. And if we let the anger grow, it is like a disease that grows and permeates the entire body. And so going on, so therefore, in light of this truth, that if you let anger grow, look what he says. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the, in the front of the altar First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now that picture that is being offered there by Jesus, that offering of a gift, was actually part of the worship, the practice of worship by the Hebrew. And so what he's saying is that if you go to the altar, you go to a place of worship, to worship by your gifts before God the Father, before you give that to God the Father, if you realize that there is anger that is towards you from a brother or sister. Don't keep worshiping. Stop and go reconcile and then come back and worship. You see, there's something that is inherent in our worship that is part of relational unity. Jesus said in John 17, that the greatest testimony to the world about the validity of Jesus being one with the Father is observed in testimony and evidence by the unity of the church. You can read that later, but in John 17, he basically says, your unity as a church is one of the greatest testifying examples that what I am saying is true, that I as Jesus am one with the Father being his Son. And therefore, you can make the opposite, that our lack of unity begins to distort 
Those who do not know Jesus, it begins to distort their ability to understand who Jesus is. So relational unity among each other is as important as relational unity between us and the Father. We should not separate or compartmentalize. We'll go into greater text here that will connect that as our relational unity grows with God, so also our relational unity with one another grows. But I want to highlight the point that relational brokenness, which is permeating our entire society, is like that disease that can permeate an entire body and as a result can permeate an entire church and therefore distort the reality of the character of God. This is also so important to understand that if we don't take care of our relationships, it becomes a hindrance to our own personal worship. Are you alarmed yet? When you think about this, that if there is a broken relationship between you and another, and others can see it, you are hindering their view to being able to see Jesus clearly. Now sometimes that broken relationship might have 70, 80, 90% fault the other way. But it's still our responsibility to try to do what we can to mend that bridge. Going back to that pastor situation where he runs into my office and he said some pretty hurtful things about many of the staff members in, that, in my office that day. And, and, and so <laughs> once he realized that, that he had gotten the whole thing all wrong, he never apologized. And that bothered me for a long time. I went back to him months later. Now, I just was, I had nothing to do with the ordering of that furniture. It was, I was told there was furniture ordered. They delivered to, to my office. I didn't even see the magazine of ordering it. I didn't have, I don't know where they had it stored. I didn't even, I wasn't even in my office when it was delivered and put into place. But I had been totally, totally disrespected, and so did many of my peers by this particular pastor. Over time, because of the lack of apology, when he acknowledged, oh, I got it wrong, and that's, he stopped there. I'm thinking he would apologize. He didn't. Over months of wrestling with, he should have apologized. He not only disrespected me, but he disrespected in front of me the rest of the pastoral team. I found that my heart began to be in anger. And I remember reading this text and thinking, boy, I wish he had gone to the altar and realized he needs to come back and apologize to me. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed because that means you get what I'm saying. No, God did a little wrecking of my own life. I went back to him and apologized for becoming angry with him. 
And that was very hard for me because I clearly, the initial violation had nothing to do with me. But I made the violation grow in my own heart. So I went back and I apologized. And I'll admit, inside of me, I'm hoping that it would get reciprocated. And you're probably hoping to hear that this pastor made right. And I'm going to be honest with you. He never apologized. But I was able to worship again. I was able to work with him again. I can't affect or choose for him to be humble enough to apologize or to become brokenhearted. I, I can't do that. But I can do my part in making sure that the hindrance between he and I is not a bridge that I'm building. Or burning, for that matter. However you want to look at the analogy. But that I am doing what it's possible that he can come easily and be reconciled because there's no barrier that I put up. And let me tell you, I am very justice-oriented. I did not feel that it was my responsibility to initiate that apology. I felt like the wrong had been the other direction. I felt justified, quite frankly, in my anger. Which is why it was very, very, very difficult for me to apologize to him for what had become a clear barrier, and it was hindering my worship. In this room, there are people that are victims of broken relationship, just like I was in this particular situation. You didn't initiate the harm. And you feel justified maybe now in some of your actions. I'm choosing my words very carefully right now. And in that justification, in those broken relationships that you might have, you feel that you're in the right. And I'm saying today, I'm not sure you are. Even if you're the victim. I'm not saying that, I had to, that, that it's right that you have to go and pretend that nothing ever happened or, or whatever. But the reality is, many of us want to feel justified in our anger. And therefore, we let it simmer. And when you let anger simmer, as Jesus is pointing out here, Anger can turn into something that can become quite the barrier between you and God. It begins to hurt you. And the pain of whatever happened as a victim now is growing, but in a different way, in a different manner, and it's self-inflicted. There are others of you here that you're not the victim. You might actually be the perpetrator in burning a bridge. 
And maybe some decisions have been made that, that while things can't return to what they were, but you certainly can keep another from being hindered in their worship. By actually acknowledging that you were wrong and apologizing. Saying I'm sorry might actually be one of the most healing set of words ever spoken from one human being to another. It might actually release anger that has been brewing in an individual and changing their character for the bad. Your saying I am sorry could be a deal breaker to where the deal was that they're, they're selling their souls out to the enemy. But it could actually be a healing moment where they become restored once again to relationship with God and even others. So whether you are the one that caused the harm or you've received the harm or just simply it's 50-50 where both people harmed the other and it just stands broken. Somebody has to go first to decide I am done burning the bridge. I'm ready to start building it so that there's freedom for both of us to be able to move forward. In order for that to happen, something extremely key needs to begin in your own heart. And it's this word, forgive. You see, in relational brokenness, there are two sides of the story. Pretty much most of the time, we tend to make the side of our story being we're only 5% wrong and the other's 95%. We're only 5% right, sorry, and the other's 95% wrong. That's our perspective. We tend to go there pretty easily. But the realities are that if we do not choose to forgive, then we're choosing then to cling to our anger, to cling to being victimized, to cling to our justification that we are right in being able to keep a fractured relationship. In the Lord's Prayer, you have it written in in Matthew, you also have it in Luke in different form, but in Luke, in the way Jesus states that Lord's Prayer there, he says this, And forgive us our sins. Again, the the audience is the Father. And Father, forgive us our sins so that for also we can forgive everyone who sins against us. Remember when Jesus was giving this prayer to the people, they were asking, Lord, how should we pray? And so you see that, the, and, and if you go into the text in Matthew in particular, and then also here in Luke 11, you'll see that the Lord gives this to him as a pattern of prayer. So it's supposed to be a regular pattern in our prayer that we pray, Father, forgive me, forgive me of our of my sin but then also as i can then forgive everyone who sins against me the reality is is people sin against us do they not people talk about us 
they hurt us and they justify. It's like, well, I, I was just sharing something. I didn't mean to gossip about you. Or I didn't mean to hurt you in that or whatever. But, but often we're sinned against. So Jesus gives us a pattern that as part of our prayers, we ask for forgiveness of sins and we're charged to say, as we also then forgive others of how they sin against us. In Matthew 18, I want you to turn there. A question is asked by Peter. Because if you know anything about Matthew 18, some of you might say, oh, that's the chapter where church discipline is talked about. That's one of the privileges that if you become a member of the church, we get to practice with you. That, that is funny, actually. <laughs> that's why maybe some of you is like, well, why would I sign up to be a member? That, it's, that affords me greater accountability. Yes, it does. It does. So Jesus has just talked about how when there is an error in the church or, or there's been broken relationship between members of the church, he gives us a pattern by which we can deal with the issue. And that's found in verses 15 to verse 20. He shares it with the disciples. And then Peter asks a question in verse 21 that is very logical. Look what it says. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked the Lord, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, pause for a moment, okay? Jesus has just given a pattern about how to deal with a broken relationship within the church. A pattern where you begin with one, where the offended people talk with one another. And if that doesn't work and it continues to be harmful within the church, then he says, we'll take two or three with you to try to make this healed and, and reconciled together. And then if that person ends up rejecting the counsel of two or three, then take it to the whole church. And if they do not respond to the whole church and they continue to be divisive or causing harm within the church, then remove yourself from them. Okay, that's the pattern of the verses before. But then Peter wants to ask, how many times then should I forgive someone who sins against me? Now Peter thinking he's going to be like pretty godly in this moment saying, should I do Seven times? Would that, would that be enough? Is seven times enough? I mean, that's, that's a lot to ask to forgive someone seven times for having sinned against you. I mean, let's think about this. In this room, think about one of the most broken relationships you've ever had. The violation number, most of us would say, we've forgiven them once and twice that's like, that's a done deal. Would you not agree? That's the normal pattern for all of us. I forgive them the first time, but if it happens again, it's off. So Peter saying seven times was pretty incredible. Pretty incredible to say, is it, is it the expectation? Let me choose the number of God, seven. So seven times, is that enough? And being able to forgive someone and then we can just write them off out of our lives. Here's Jesus' response, so let's continue on. Verse 22, Jesus answered, No, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. 
Hmm. Jesus basically goes on, and, and everybody agrees that the language he uses here is, is a language of basically it's an infinite number. Then Jesus goes on to tell this parable, and let's read it. It says in verse 23, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all they had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him, says, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master looked and had, took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him and says, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The master called in that servant and says, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how the Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you give your brother, forgive your brother or sister from your heart. See, it's, it would be amazing to be a teacher with Jesus' qualities because he has the entire library of humanity in his head. So he can pull from a story that is likely to have happened somewhere in the history of mankind and uses it as a point of teaching. You see, we're willing to advocate for ourselves when it's us on the line. Forgive us. Forgive us. Be patient with me. I'll try to make it right. And we come back to God again. God, forgive me. Be patient with me. I'll make it right. A few days later, <laughs> forgive me. Be patient with me. I'll make it right. And then throughout your life, how many times have you said that to God? And then yet, somebody comes to you that has wounded you, hurt you, and we might forgive them the first time, but the second time, we finish. And Jesus is making a point to Peter and to us now because he allowed this to be written so that we would have this for all of history and future. He's making a point that, you know what? All of us have been forgiven much. All of us have been forgiven much. And we should take on the same spirit of the Father who's forgiven us much and be forgiving to others. So the answer to Peter's question, how many times should I forgive someone? How far should I go in forgiving someone? And the answer is farther than the eye can see. You keep being forgiving. 
So the first step to really finding renewal in a relationship is when you forgive the harm that has been done to you. Having the same mercy and grace that you expect and hope from God and extending it to someone else. The second part kind of goes to a cliche. We've heard the term forgive, right? What usually comes after it? Forgive and to forget. Find that in Scripture and show it to me. Google it. If you Google it, it'll say it is not found in Scripture. First three looks you'll see on Google. So Google is actually somewhat trustworthy. It is correct. It is not found in Scripture. However, the concept is spoken to in many different ways. So if forgiving is so important, and it really is, the only way that a broken relationship can ever be healed is if there's forgiveness. So that even if there isn't going to be the same in relationship going forward, the kind of forgiveness that says, I am choosing to let go of my anger towards you and all the harm that's been done so that we both can worship. Another aspect of this forgiveness is this idea of forget, but not in the way that we think it means, not, not in the way of forgetting where you can't even recall it, but rather choosing to say, I, by forgiving you, I give up my right to be angry or to pay you back. You see, when it's on record with you, the offense, you choose then to remember it and therefore give yourself the right to repay in your attitude towards that individual, repay in your spirit towards that individual, and to hold on to your right by how you might deny that individual any kind of sense of peace being able to move forward because you've kept the anger there. Forgetting says, by forgiving you and forgetting, it says that I give up my right then to be angry or to hold it against you. When I was sharing this concept with Joel last, last week, he was saying, you know what, that kind of reminds me of like a judge who has a record eliminated for a person that has done time, they've made some mistakes, but they expunged the record so that it no longer exists. Can that judge remember that they had done things before? Yes. But in the counts of their record, there is nothing to hold against them any longer. They can remember it, but now we don't have to act in towards, towards them in a way that says, well, you're guilty of all these other things. It's like having your record expunged, just like that. That when we forgive someone, we are giving up the rights to keep the list of all the wrongs and responding to them in that manner. In Micah, in the Old Testament, it says that in regards to people constantly making uh, uh, God angry and, and therefore uh, violating his covenants, it says in Micah 7.18 that God still does not hold a grudge. He gets angry, he teaches us, he, he disciplines us, but he doesn't hold a grudge. Now this doesn't mean that when God forgives us of our sins, and it says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and, and the analogy that he gives us is that he makes us whiter than snow, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden God can't remember what you did before. Otherwise, then that would mean you and I have memory that God doesn't have. And that just creates an impossibility. No, God can remember the things of the past and the things we've done wrong. For example, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, 
It says this, and this is where some people get this idea of forgive and forget. It says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is talking about Israel and his response to Israel. Yet when you read chapter 8 prior to verse 12, he's going over how they had violated the relationship with them. So he clearly had remembered it. He remembered the violations of Israel, but he's saying, I will not remember those sins anymore in the sense that he is going to operate under the violations. He is going to hold on to his right to say, you have violated my covenant. No, he has already forgiven it. He has forgiven it, and therefore, he does not act according to their sins any longer. So, as Charles Stanley put it, he goes, this does not mean that we forego the wisdom of the knowledge of the past, where we get this idea that forgiveness is different from trust. In other words, if someone has violated, and I'm gonna, I'll just use an example. There was somebody that had violated my family. I'd given them the keys to my house to take care of my house while I was away. They used those keys to access my house multiple times in a manner that was not appropriate. We had to work this out and come to a place where I forgave them, but that did not mean that I gave them the keys to my house again. You understand what I mean? There's wisdom that comes with some of the knowledge of the past. But in my relationship with him, I did not treat that person as a means by which I was justified to treat them in anger, or to minimize their standing with me in regards to that. I just simply didn't put them in a place of temptation. So Charles Stanley's correct when he says, forgiveness is different from trust in the sense of, you got to make sure that you are not creating a hindrance for future mistakes. He quotes this statement from Jesus in his explanation of those words, and it's in Matthew 10, 16, when Jesus says, be shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. So we treat each other purely, but when we know somebody has an issue with something that's historical, we've forgiven them. We're not keeping a record of wrongs in a sense we're being punitive, but we're also going to be wise, as it says, being shrewd as snakes. We're going to be wise to make sure that that violation can't be repeated for their sake and yours. So the steps to healing broken relationships is to forgive, we start there. Tall order, single word, but tall order, I get it. And to forget, also single word, but tall order, where we're not going to hold against them their records of having done wrong against us. We're going to give up our right to be angry, to be punitive in any kind of manner. We're going to forget it. We're going to expunge the record between them and us. But we're going to be wise. We're going to be wise with it. So forgive, forget, and the third piece is this. And it's absolutely key throughout this entire thing, and it's love. You see, we're called, Paul put it pretty simply in Ephesians 5.1. He says, for those of us who are in Christ, who have experienced the relationship with Jesus Christ, we're called to live a life of love. Verbatim. Verbatim in the Greek, verbatim in the English text, we're called to live a life of love. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we know the love chapter, chapter 13. And in there it says, in the description of love, 
being the motive of our heart. You know, it ends that chapter by saying, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. It also says in that chapter that you could uh, say that you are honoring God with all that you do. You can even die a martyr's death, but if you did not die that martyr's death out of the motive of love for God, then your, your martyr's death meant nothing. So love is the preeminent attribute between us and God. We're called to then live out of that life of love. But in the descriptors of 1 Corinthians 13 about love, it says this in verse 5. It keeps no record of wrongs. So how can we then forget somebody's sin against us? We operate out of love. We operate out of love because love will help us not keep the record of wrong. We'll cling to love rather than brokenness. Secondly, it says in verse 6 that love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. And so in that, it doesn't give up. Love keeps going, which then helps us then forgive 70 times 7. You see, we can't do forgive, we can't do forget unless love is the motive. We live that life of love, we keep no records of wrongs, and we persevere under love. And you say, that's the kind of love I just I don't have too many models to. Well, yes, you do. Read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll discover the love modeled in Jesus Christ found nowhere else in human history. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says this. Dear friends, since God so loved us, you and me, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God but if we love one another God lives in us and love is made complete in us here's the hope I feel very weak when it comes to the ability to not operate out of my own sense of justification when I have been the one violated I feel extremely weak I feel extremely weak sometimes to not operate out of punitive language or punitive actions when I know somebody has violated the relationship with me. But where I find hope and where I cling is the love between myself and God. You see, the more I fall in love with God and, and, and get to know His heart, then that love relationship begins to change and transform me. In the same way, when there's healthy relationships between one another, whether it be a marriage relationship or a good friendship, when there's healthiness and there's true, genuine love going on between, both affect the other. And if the love of God is in you, then you have the source necessary to be able to forgive the way Jesus talked about, which is completely radical. He will give you the ability to forgive like that. And then Jesus will give you the grace necessary to be able to not operate punitively in those relationships. I can only find that by a growing love relationship between myself and God. If I don't have that love relationship with him as being the source, then I'm going to default to my justifications of my own life. I appeal again to you, if you have broken relationships, it's not just about your own healing. It's not just about 
the other person's healing. It's not just about even the two of you being able to worship freely. It's also about the testimony of Jesus Christ. I began there and I want to finish there. Jesus said, the world will know that the message of me being one with the Father will be evidenced by the unity of the church. And if we allow relational brokenness to be the norm in our midst, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our business dealings, then the distortion of who Jesus is will only grow. But if we allow love of God and the Father to be what guides us in motive, then we'll be given power and ability and strength and perseverance to forgive and truly forget. Let's pray. Father God, I, <laughs> I, I, I stand here as being guilty of wanting to hold on to my rights, of being offended, being hurt, and as a result, being able to operate with maybe what I would say is a tinge of anger, but in reality, maybe it's a significant amount of anger, or that I can operate punitively, and I just don't believe that when I do that, that that's the pattern that Jesus has given me. So I confess that before the people and ask for your forgiveness. God, we are truly a culture that has modeled relational brokenness as being okay when it's justified by personal means. And it's confusing our next generation. It's hindering our culture, and it's certainly hindering the church. And as a result, it's distorting the truth of Jesus. God, forgive us for that. We need a deep work of the soul. So can you speak into our lives more richly and let us trust that the work you want to do if we lay our worship for a moment aside, if we go to reconcile and at least do our part to forgive and to no longer keep the record of wrongs, that you would then enable our worship to be sweet. Because we want our souls to be at peace. We want our souls to be uh, transparent before you, unhindered. So lead us to that end and help us to be brave. Help us to be bold to step out and do what would be necessary to heal relation brokenness that we might be a part of. And I ask that in the name of Jesus because that's where this can come from only. Amen. God, I, I know that the only way in some of our brokenness in relationships, the only way that anything can have any hope would be a miracle. We know that there are many broken situations that's going to require a miraculous intervention of God. But we also know that a part of your miracle is changing us in the process. And the only way that I can think of to pray on behalf of all of us here is that you would first begin with us and healing the brokenness within us. That we might trust in you 
and that our eyes could be set on you because if we have our eyes set on anything else, it's going to be our right to be angry or our right to be hurt or our right to be punitive. And it's just not going to go up. We need our eyes on you. We need you painting a picture that we can cling to of hope. And so, God, I just ask that if you are calling different ones of us here in this room to begin to take steps of healing broken, brokenness and, and dealing with wounds, that you will give them courage. You'll give them trust in you and your outcome and that even if they don't get a reciprocation of apology, that you would at least heal those of us who are taking those steps to a place where we can now be free to worship unhindered again. And that we won't distort the understanding of Jesus. So I pray for success in those encounters that you will then lead each of us by your spirit and empower us by your spirit because only by you can we have this hope. And so Lord, lead us forward, I pray. In your son's name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you wish to talk to someone, you saw who the elders were that were up on stage. You also can see there's somebody up front here underneath the cross would be willing to pray with you or I'll be up front over here. We would love to pray with you and to engage you and to ask for God's help. That's why we're here. So go boldly, courageously, but also with forgiveness and a remembrance like God where there's mercy. Amen.